Welcome to the Life Church STL podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages and inspires you. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. All righty. Well, I'm just going to tell you up front that this is going to take a little bit of time today. And uh, I want to know is that okay? Yeah. Are you sure about that? Yeah. Okay, I'm serious. And uh, so here we go. First of all, Father, we give this to you now. Please speak through me today. God, and use this for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going to go real quick. Here's what we're going to do today. The title of my message is actually Lessons from Lot. You know Lot in the Old Testament? Lessons from Lot. The value of spiritual family. Now, we build this message on last week's, and I don't have time to give you a recap of that, but let me just say that last, for those of you who weren't here, last week we were in Genesis 1 talking about the creation mandate was God created all the ground, gave man dominion over it, put him in the garden to learn to co-labor with him, but he wasn't to stay in the garden. He was to live with the vision to go out and take new ground. Are you with me now? So that's the message. And that thread runs all through the New Testament. If you, if you see the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you'll see that man really didn't do very well with that. He went time and time again back to living selfishly with a self-centered mentality. And so God finally comes to the moment in Genesis 12, you ready for this? Watch this, where God says, I know what I'm going to do. I know how I'm going to get man out, outside of himself to live looking outwardly to touch the world. Here's how I'm going to do it. He says, I'm going to start a family. Now watch this. You get that? The whole plan. The whole deal to bring in the Messiah, to take Canaan land, to take all the ground. And ultimately, that taking ground is a metaphor for us loving and serving the world, reaching the world. He said, I'm going to accomplish all of that by doing one single thing. I'm going to start a family. And folks, here's what you have to understand. When God created man, he started with a family, Adam and Eve. When God initiated his plan to bring in the Messiah, he started with a family. And when God initiated the church, Paul calls it a family. God's mechanism for all of the mission he's given us to do is walking in spiritual family. Now, thank you for your tremendous enthusiasm for that. Y'all were shouting on taking ground, but you said, and I'm going to show you why that is, why there's a little lack of a shout about spiritual family. So God said, I'm going to start a family. And so he finds a man who has a heart after God, Abram. And he comes to him, and here's what happens, Genesis 12. Look what God first addresses when he's calling Abraham to start this family. Look at this. Genesis 12, 1, now the Lord had said to Abram, I'm sorry, I'm skipping my first two verses. I guess you noticed that. That's the way I roll. Okay. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, 
from your family and from your father's house. No, so the whole mission is to take ground, right? By starting a family. And so God says the first thing you need to do is get away from everything that's comfortable, everything that's familiar to you. Get away from that piece of ground that's already made into a garden. Are you with me now? Where you can live with your eyes closed. You can live with no vision. He said you need to get away from that or you're never going to accomplish what I've called you to do. He says, leave that, now watch this, to a land that I will show you. It's always about ground. So God tells Abram, he says, I'm going, I want you to leave this because I've got ground I want you to take. Look at the next statement. He says, I will make you a great nation. Now, what is the nation that God is going to make? It's the, it's the children of Israel. Now, who is Israel? Israel was Jacob. Jacob is Abram's grandson. So God was saying, I'm going to make a nation, but the nation is going to be a family. And your family, I'm going to raise up as a great nation. So you see the two dynamics here. God says, I'm going to send you out to take ground, and I'm going to do it through family. He said, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and look at these last four words, Lot went with him. Now, I love the Bible. It's so fascinating. You've got this grand passage, and it ends with these four words that seem like a postscript that's totally unrelated to the rest of the passage. Who gives a flip if Lot went with him? You with me now? But you know, if you've heard me preach, I always say, if it's in there, it's in there for a reason. There's a message in it. And God put that in there because there's a whole message about spiritual family in how Lot handled things with Abram. That's why God put in there and Lot went with him. Now watch this. So we're going to take and learn a few lessons, some lessons out of Lot's dealings with Abram that's going to apply directly to our life. But now watch this. This is what's important. Let's place a pause, push pause on that story for a minute. And let's go to the New Testament. And I wouldn't do this if it wasn't necessary. I want us to establish this truth of the importance, the value of family, and how we need to understand what it means to live as family. I want us to establish that as a New Testament truth. And we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're still with me, say, I'm with you. If you're with me, say, I'm with you, Pastor Rick. All right, there you go. If you go to Ephesians 3, now I love this. I love the Bible. If you go to Ephesians 3, this passage in Ephesians 3 is full of powerful truths that many of us use all the time. But what we do is we use each of them separately, disconnected from the whole passage. And when we do, we miss what Paul is trying to tell us. Are you with me now? 
You have to look at the Scripture in context. Have you ever heard that whenever you, the statement, when you look at a text with a, when you look at a text out of context, it becomes a pretext. All right, thank you for your tremendous. I'm telling you, y'all are rough today. I'm going to have to work with you. So we have to look at the context. This is a letter that Paul is writing here. He's got one thought. So let's look at this, Ephesians 3.8. You ready? Watch this. Paul says, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach the, among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. This is big stuff. Paul is saying, dude, I've had this revelation about the big stuff, what it's all about, the mystery. Now watch this. And then he says, to the intent, the intention of all that God's up to, watch this, is to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You know, I love this. This is warfare language. I mean, dude, this is taking your ground language. What is Paul saying here? This whole thing God's up to, the intent of it is that God would raise up the church not to be a bunch of weaklings, not to be some internally folks focused, navel-gazing club, but to reach out and take ground and reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the powers of darkness. What he's saying is, I'm raising up the church to go out into the world to take ground where the enemy is occupying, evict the enemy off of that ground and reveal the plan of God. By introducing the life of God to that ground. That's powerful stuff. And then he, now watch this. And then he says here, in heavenly places, watch this. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So he's saying this, uh, this whole plan is going to be carried out by these bold and confident people. Yeah. Now, up to this point, I've got all the warfare people stirred up. <laughs> I mean, I've got them all on the edge of their seat. But, I love this. Paul takes a left turn. At least it looks like it. Because we disconnect these truths. So Paul's talking about this great mission, this great authority and dominion we have. Watch this. And then he says this. He says, therefore, for that reason, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And I think, What? Dude, you just told us this thing's all of victory and power and dominion. And then Paul says, look, I want you to see 
Y'all know that I'm going through a lot of stuff right now. And y'all look at me, the great apostle Paul, and see that there's a lot of junk happening in my life. There's a lot of hell breaking across my life right now. And what he's saying is this. He says, number one, I don't want you to mistake what I'm going through for the fact that God is not going to do what he's called us to do. What Paul is saying, even though I'm going through this adversity, this hell right now, what I'm going through is not going to stop what God wants to do in and through us and in and through me. That's what he's saying. What Paul is doing is he's introducing these two parallel realities that flow simultaneously together in our lives all the time. God calls us to great mission and vision with great authority and power, and we see wonderful, miraculous things happen. But isn't this the way it is? All the while that all that victory is going on, there's this other parallel reality where we're dealing with a bunch of stuff. There's stuff that hits us upside the head, and we say, where did that come from? I thought God had this great plan. What's this junk all about? And what Paul is saying is, we live in this reality of the, that has this divine, this not divine, but this tension between, you've got to understand as the church, there's great glory, vision, power, all of that, but there's always going to be, Jesus said in John 16, 33, he said, in this world you will have tribulation. Most people don't put that on their refrigerator and confess it every day. But Jesus said, you will. He said, but I have overcome the world. Those, those two realities working together. Ah, I love that. And we need to understand this because what people end up doing, Christians end up doing this. They end up thinking when something, when, you know, say Pastor Rick is going through something, maybe he has a setback, experiences this season where things aren't going his way, all of a sudden it looks like, oh, boy. Things, things are really happening to him. And then what do people say? Oh, something must be wrong with him. You, it, it's got to be wrong, or why is all that stuff happening? And that, that's what Paul's dealing with. He says, dear heart, don't think that what I'm going through is a sign that something's wrong. God's still right on time, and he's going to do everything. That's for this church. It's for your life individually. You know, and Paul one day got bitten by a snake and they said he was a devil. And then he shook the snake off into the fire and wasn't harmed and they said he was a god. <laughs> Stupid people. <laughs> Fickle. Let me tell you something. I've, I've really tried to remind myself this statement for many years and that is that when, you're, when things are going bad, you're never as bad as people say you are. And when things are going good, you're never as good as people say you are. You're neither a devil nor a God. Are you with me now? Oh, I love that. Now, so then he says this. He says, uh, Therefore, I ask that you not lose heart, my tribulation for you, for which is your glory. Now, watch this. Then he says, for this reason. Now, look, folks, if you know me, you know I always try to stop and take note of these prepositional phrases. 
Don't miss the prepositional phrases in Scripture. You miss the whole ball of wax. So Paul says, so what Paul does, he introduces this idea, God's got something great for us. It's going to be glorious. But you're going to still have all this stuff happen all along the while. And he says, in light of that, he says, watch this. For that reason, I lost my place. <laughs> for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm driven to prayer. Watch this. From whom the whole family in heaven, in earth is named. And I think, what? Paul, you just took a left turn. Now, this is where all the warfare people are, man, they're all hyped up. And they're ready now. Okay, what's Paul going to say next? And all of a sudden, I says, I'm driven to prayer. Oh, oh I'm sure Paul was going to be praying about victory breakthrough, cursing the devil off of the ground. Come on, bring the miracle. But he said, no, because of all that I just told you, the great thing God has for us, but yet this reality of junk still going on, uh, on along the way, because of that, I'm praying that you would get a revelation of what it means to live as spiritual family. Same thing he was telling Abram. Back in Genesis 12, I'm going to use family to accomplish this great mission. And if you don't understand family, you're not going to fulfill what God has for the church. I like that. I'm enjoying this too much today. Sorry. But now, look at this. So look at this. So he says, from whom I'm praying, from the God from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And here we are back to strength and might. But where does that strength and might come from? Watch this. See, we use these truths, but we use them separately. They're all flowing together. Watch this. He says, according, he said, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Where does that come from? that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And it's like now Paul's really gone off the deep end. Paul, you were doing good. You were talking about warfare, overcoming the powers of darkness, taking ground, all this. And now you're talking about family and love. And you know, I'll just tell you, a lot of people who are really like this victory and power-minded think this stuff is wimp stuff. But I'm going to tell you what, those people who think that, I have met some of them. I've actually been in the back room with some of them. And they will get on top of the arch to pull the devil off the arch. But you get them in a back room and they can't hold a conversation and look you in the eye. Are you with me now? And frankly, that's why we have so many shooting stars in the body of Christ that end up flaking out, freaking out, and, sh and suffering shipwreck. Is because they experience great gifts and power, 
but it's not built on the soil of what it means to walk in love with spiritual family. Now, look at this. I love this. So Paul doesn't stop. He says, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. I mean, he, he hammers it in. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be full, filled with all the fullness of God. He said, dude, you're not going to reach the bottom of this one. And I love it. So he says, you've got you've to realize everything's built upon Walking in love and spiritual family. Now watch this. So then he opens chapter 4. And you all know when Paul wrote this, he didn't write in chapter and verse, right? It's a letter. So the very next sentence, he said this. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness. I love this. I can hear what Paul's thinking. He's saying, look, I just told you to walk in love as spiritual family. But I know you people. And it's easy for you to pat each other on the back and say, love you, brother. Love you, sister. And then go treat each other like jerks. Are you with me now? And so what Paul says, he says, let me, just, let me just explain this to you, what that means. What walking, let me write a book for you called Love for Dummies. <laughs> Here's what it means. He says it means you walk with all lowliness. Humbly. That's what walking in love means. Humbly. Not tooting your own horn. No competition. And he said, in gentleness, not getting ticked off. Is anybody still passing yet? Not getting ticked off at people. And he says, with long suffering. Now, I love this. Every time I read this word, I just can't help but think, I want to say it this way. With long suffering. Because that's what it means. It means that you put up with people for a long time. You don't just do like what disciples want to do, forgive them seven times. Jesus says, no. He said, you forgive them 490 times in one day. Now, the disciples weren't thinking seven times in a day. They were thinking seven times. And Jesus said 409 times one day. And you know what? I thought, how many times is that in a day? You know what it is? 490 times is once every three minutes. Paul says they come and slap you upside the head, metaphorically. And you say, I forgive you. Three minutes later, they come slap you upside the head again. I forgive you. Three minutes later, poof, I forgive you. Three minutes later, poof, I forgive you. Look, dude. One hour of that, and you're going to punch him in the face. <laughs> right? And Jesus said, you need to get a love. I mean, you know, we don't understand the kind of love that it takes to walk this thing out. It's why Jesus said, they, the world, will know we are his disciples by our love. 
It must be because it's a, it takes a kind of love that the world really can't function in themselves. He says this, he says, bearing with one another. I love these words, long-suffering, bearing. Isn't that a good word? Bearing. We like victory, power, breakthrough. Bearing. Isn't that good? Now, let me tell you something. You don't have to bear with people who are making you feel good. You have to bear with people who are difficult. And he says, and don't, don't forget, the point here is, he says, you want to accomplish this great mission? Reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the powers of dark. Take ground. He said, you don't think of this way. You don't connect the dots. But he says it requires you bearing with people, being long-suffering, being gentle. And he goes on and he says this. I love this. Endeavoring. Don't you love these words? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He said there is one body and one Spirit. Now, I read this. And one time when I read this, it's like I completely changed the way I saw this. I begin to feel the emotion of Paul in this. I can tell what Paul's saying. After saying all here that I just said, Paul's basically saying, guys, there's only one body. This is all we've got. Y'all look at me. You look around the people around you, and I watch how people treat other Christians and how they treat churches, how they, how they just treat people in general. It's like they, they totally don't value it. They don't value the people. It's like they think that we've got another one. If we don't like the body, we can get another body. Paul's saying there's only one body. Don't destroy it. Well, are y'all getting anything out of this? Now, let's go back to Lot. And having established that in the New Testament, I want us to look at Lot and see how Lot viewed spiritual family. You remember, he is there with Abram, who's got this great mission God's given him. God said, I want to build through family. How did Lot treat that? Well, here's what's happened. Let me tell you the story quick. Abram takes off, and God starts blessing him. He doesn't just get blessed. He starts getting wildly blessed. But Lot, who is with him, he starts getting blessed. But not just blessed, he gets wildly blessed. Until finally one day, Lot comes to Abram and says something like this, uh, Uncle Abe, we need to talk. You know, I've been getting so blessed that it's starting to cause problems. We're, me and my guys are feeling cramped. We're feeling unappreciated. We're, we're feeling like we're not respected enough, and we're kind of getting bent out of shape, you know, and, and strife with your guys. So watch this. Watch Lot's remedy. So you know what I'm going to do, Lot? I'm so blessed since it's caused these troubles, my remedy is I'm going to leave you. I mean, leaving. Leaving was the remedy. And so he left, but watch this. 
When he said, I'm leaving, Abram does this amazing thing. He takes Lot up onto the top of a hill, and they overlook this vast expanse, vast landscape. Over here, the Bible says, there are the well-watered plains of the Jordan, and over here is this dry, barren ground. And Lot tell, Abram tells Lot, you choose which one you want. Well, there's a whole message in that. Don't have time for it. Figure it out. Listen to this. He said, you choose. And what did Lot do? Listen, there's a message in this. Lot chose the well-watered plains of the Jordan. But watch this. I love the Bible. If you don't know this stuff, you'll miss such powerful things. He chose the well-watered plains of the garden. But when you read that, you know what the Scripture says? It says the well-watered plains of the Jordan were like the garden of God. Paul, I mean, Lot was saying, look, dude, I don't want some dry, barren ground that I'm going to have to take and turn into a garden because... He realized that Abram, he, Abram got blessed because he had a word from God and walked in faith, cried out to God, believed God through the midnight hour, through thick and thin, hell and high waters. He stood strong in his faith on the word, and that word brought forth a blessing and brought forth the garden. But Lot didn't get blessed because he had a word. He never knew what it was like to get a word and stand on that thing in faith. Lot got blessed because he was living under the household of somebody that had a word. Oh, there's a message in every one of these things, and I can't stop. Listen to this. Oh, hallelujah. He was living his life with God and his purpose through osmosis. We can do that with church. Figure it out. I don't have time. Listen. So watch this. So Lot says, look, I've never gotten to where I am now by getting a word and standing in faith. I don't know how to do that. So I'm not about to start over and take, get a piece of ground where I have to get a word and believe God to raise up something out of nothing. So he said, what I want, I want a piece of ground that's already turned into a garden because all I need is a place to build bigger barns for my stuff. And so you see the two contrasting views here, Abram's and Lot's. Abram could tell Lot, baby, you choose whichever you want because Lot knew it didn't matter. I mean, I'm sorry, not Lot. Abram knew it didn't matter. He didn't have to have a garden. If it's a garden or if it's a barren, dry desert, I got this place to this place by a word from heaven and believing God, and I'm going the rest of the way by believing the word of God. It's like Abram had this commitment. Either the word is going to take me on in or I'm not going in. I love that. So anyway, Lot... He left, and when he left, it did not go well for him. 
Matter of fact, it turned out really bad, if you know the rest of the story. And so I saw this, and when I looked at this, I thought, what was it about Lot that caused him to act this way? So you all see that there is a, there's a whole metaphor in this, this picture of Lot had these problems with Abram and his family, and his remedy was he left, leaving the relationship, discarding the relationship. And I thought, what made him do that? And you know, I can think of one thing. God said this whole thing's got to be built on family. And what Lot did is he valued his blessing more than he valued family. He did not understand that the people are more important than the stuff. So he left the relationship so he could pursue the stuff. How crazy is that? But people do it all the time. We discard relationships just like they're nothing. Or at least we treat them like they're nothing. And so I thought of this. The thing was he didn't understand family. He didn't value Abram. He didn't value his family. And therefore, he didn't understand Abram's vision and his mission. And I thought about family. You know, we've already seen in Ephesians 3 that Paul calls the church family, right? He says right there, we are spiritual family. So if Paul says that, then we need to get some understanding of as a church, what does it mean to be spiritual family? And I want to focus on this one thing. All families are built with sons and daughters. Now, the Bible uses sons. He doesn't say daughter in the, uh, you know, throughout the New Testament, so there's this whole thing, sons, sons, sons. But I'm going to just tell you, if you it, ladies, if you in this message will allow me to call you sons, I'll allow you to call me the bride of Christ. All right? Is that a deal? All right. So a church is this family which is built on sons. So what does it mean to be a son? I thought of this. If the church were an organization, it would be built on workers or servants. But it's not. If the church is a family, then it's built on sons. The servants have to become sons. And I began to realize, now don't miss this, this is exactly the problem that Lot had. And I'm going to prove it to you. Watch this. Lot was biological family, right? He was, Lot, he was Abram's nephew. So if anybody was supposed to become a son, learn how to become a son, it should be Lot. I mean, dude, you're already in. You're part of the biological family. But Lot never learned how to become a son in the house. Yet, when he leaves, he ends up making his home in Sodom. Somebody say, bad idea. And five armies come against Sodom and attack it, and they take Lot captive. Now Lot is prisoner. And what does Abram do? He, he develops this elaborate plan. I love this. There's a whole message from Abram's side, too. 
He develops this elaborate plan to go and rescue Lot. And here's the plan. He goes and he gets 318 of his servants. And he asks them, these 318, to go in, fight these five armies, defeat them, and rescue Lot. Now listen to this. These 318 servants said yes, and they went in at the risk of their lives. They were willing to give everything to go and rescue Lot. But folks, listen to this. Make no mistake about it. They didn't do it for Lot. They did it for Abram. Because Even though Lot should have become a son, and he never learned how to become a son, there were 318 servants who nobody thought would become sons who end up becoming sons in the house. They're servants, but they fall in love with Abram so much and of his family and with the mission of the house that they're willing to give their lives for it. Those aren't servants. Those are sons. I love that. When I saw this lot in the 318, I began to realize becoming a son in the house is not about how long you've been here. It's not about the, your proximity to the leadership. It's not about your gifts and your talents. It's a revelation that God has to give you so we come to the place where we understand that God has called us to all to walk, number one, under one vision of the house, the team together to fulfill what God's called us to do together, something much greater than what we could do individually by ourselves. But secondly, to realize that the people here are far more valuable than the mission itself. And I know that's contrary to what some Christians think. Oh, no, the mission's more important. If that were true, then tell me, why did God do this? God has this great mission, this great mandate, huge, that he gives to Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve blow it royally. And God sets aside that mission for a bit, and he works on the people. He didn't give up on Adam and Eve. The first thing he did is he made clothes to cover their nakedness. The God of the universe who just issued this sovereign mission to take the world, now he's making clothes to cover their nakedness. It tells me that God valued the people more than the mission. Y'all still listen to me today. Korah, shikah, Yeah, hallelujah. So anyway, so what does it mean? Come a son in the house. It's a revelation. And let me talk about that revelation. Look with me in 1 John chapter 2. Look at this real quick. 1 John chapter 2. John says this. He said, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven for for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Now, in this passage, here's what I see. I see three levels of spiritual growth. Children, young men, fathers. 
The children are the spiritually immature, the young men are the adolescents, and the fathers are the spiritually mature. And notice what he's saying here. He's saying, you children, you spiritually immature, your motivation is that your sins are forgiven. So watch this. For children of the spiritually mature, you know you're immature because you're consumer-driven. Are you with me? The young men, the spiritual adolescents, are conquer-driven. And the fathers, the spiritually mature, are communion-driven. And I'm going to show you how I get that. Watch this. He said, you children, you spiritually immature, you're in this thing because your sins are forgiven. When you're spiritually immature, you know it because your commitment and loyalty to the house and to the people are tied to whether you're happy or not. Am I feeling good? Is, am I getting blessed? They come to church to get blessed. They come to church to be lifted. They come, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm being blessed. Now look, there's nothing wrong with that if that's, if you really are a baby. I mean, look, I love babies. I just don't like 25-year-olds sucking their thumbs. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, he goes on to say, young men. He said, you young men, your motivation is, is you have overcome the wicked one. In other words, you're fight-driven. You're conquer-driven. And then you know you're a spiritual adolescence because now you've learned enough of the word and the mission. So, man, you've got your tools now. And your loyalty and commitment to the house and the people of God are tied to the fight. So as long as the mission is going well, you're fine. But their enthusiasm for the house of God and for the people and their commitment to them are tied to whether the mission is going well at the time. If you're winning, they're in. Y'all looked like you just went into a catatonic state. If you're winning, they're in. But it's amazing their enthusiasm wanes when the church goes through a challenging time. And I just told you there what Paul says, dude, there's going to be challenging times. Years ago, there's this one person, this woman that we loved, and she was I was using her in a different place in the church. And I mean, we were we were high, we're high on her. And then the church went through this, you know, a tough time. Big this is many years ago tough time. And she came to Donna one day and she told her, she said, you know, I was praying and the Lord told me that the ship's going down and I'm going to leave before the ship sinks. Oh, she said, I'm going to jump ship before it sinks. Now, I would like to tell you what I think about that. But I'm a preacher. I mean, you think, where did you get that? Where did you get that? I mean, you know, as a pastor, you hear so many things. Down the years, I've heard people say, people say, oh, pastor, I'm out here. Why are you out here? Oh, the grace is lifted. I thought, dude, show me chapter and verse on that. The grace is lifted. You never see Jesus saying, I'm leaving this town because the grace is lifted. He did say, no, I'm leaving, going somewhere else. Because I must needs go there because they haven't heard the gospel. So he had a word. Anyway, you know, it's like, you know, I look at this and I think, 
people, it's like they, they get attached to the mission and the vision. And you, you got to imbibe the, the mission of the house. But folks, what I'm trying to get you to see is our loyalty and commitment should be as spiritual fathers, as mature people. How to mature? They're communion-driven, which means their loyalty and commitment are tied only to God and the people. And whether, the, whether things are sailing, soaring, going great, or whether they're ch being challenged and going through adversity, it makes no difference at all because I am committed to God and His family. If we're winning right now and doing great, we're on top, I'm here soaring with you, baby. If we're going through a tough time, I'm fight, locking arms and fighting with you, baby. That's the spiritually mature. Neil. All right, let's go to this. Oh, come on now. Listen. So, I thought about this. Why was it that Lot didn't know how to become a son in the house? And I think you have to look at his story. Watch this. If you know Lot's story, here's what happened. He was an orphan. So when Lot was very young, his dad died. And after his dad died, his uncle Nahor married Lot's sister. That's weird. I mean, that'll mess with you. And then they ship Lot off to live with his grandfather, Terah. And then his grandfather dies, and so they ship him off to live with Abram. And by the time he gets to Abram's house, the dude is messed up. And he brings all this baggage with him. I'm convinced this is what was happening. That's why the Bible tells us the story. He had all this baggage he brought with him. And now he's reacting to Abram and his household, to the family, out of the rejection that he experienced as a child. And I thought of this, you know, because look, as a pastor for so many years, I, mean, I look back and this is the biggest challenge and also for me it's been the greatest glory and treasure and that's dealing with people through all their stuff. And I've just, I've just watched people walk through the mess. And I've come to realize, I've come to this conclusion, I've developed a great theological position. Are you ready? Here it is. Everybody's messed up. Everybody. Dude, I used to think it was few, and then I realized, no, it's a lot. And then I realized, no, it's everybody. I used to think it was everybody but me. And now I found out I'm messed up. Because none of us have really fully escaped the effects of the fall. I mean, I mean, you talk all your victory and power stuff you want. But let me tell you, when you're born again, your spirit's made brand new. But you still got the same emotions. You still got the same baggage. You still got the same flesh, the same reasoning. And that's what sanctification is all about. Yeah. Dealing with that mess. We're not excusing that mess. But what I'm trying to tell you is, is you've got to deal with the mess. We've got to come to the place in the church where we stop elevating people just because they've got a gift and not deal with that 
dysfunctional mess that's inside of them. Hallelujah. So look at the person next to you and say, I'm a mess and you're a mess. And I know I can feel it. I can feel the self-righteous rejection and defiance of some people here saying, no, not me. You don't know me. I'm not a mess. And all I've got to say is that's your mess. Your denial is part of your mess. Now, if that's the case, what in the world do we do with all this mess? I'll tell you one thing. You don't do like I've seen a lot of people do down through the years. They come to this church. Or they come to other churches too. But I've seen this church where they come and then they're there. Well, oh, hallelujah, praise God. I love this place. Love the worship. Love the preaching. Love the, love the. And then all of a sudden, they have some kind of little tiff with somebody in the church. Or that something happens in the church, a decision, or something else, whatever, they get being out of shape. Now watch this. And they freak out. Well, I thought this church was the church of Jesus Christ. And these people, they are messed up. I'm out of here. I thought, dude, what do you expect? What kind of church do they get? It's a church with human beings in it. If you're, if you ever find a perfect church, you better not go there. Or you will mess the whole thing up. It's true. You'll, you'll mess the whole thing up. Because you're a mess. Now, folks, I know this is funny, and I, I like it. I like the humor part of it. But, but, folks, this changes everything. It did for me. Once I realized, dude, you're a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. You're a mess. Oh, you look pretty set there. Oh, I know you dressed up real fine today. And you got that smile on your face. But I know. I know. You is a mess. And when I know that, I understand that, number one, it immediately gives me the ability to give you space and grace to be who you are while you're on the way to dealing with this stuff. And I'm patient with you to let you go in your time and God's time in getting that stuff sanctified out of your life. I mean, that changes everything. And secondly, it does this. What it does is it allows me to look at you and not expect too much out of you because of wrong expectations. You know, it's crazy. I've seen so many people in church, you know, they go along and then somebody offends them. Well, of course they're going to offend you. I, if you've, you've been in this church for years, you heard me say probably several times down the years, I said, look, if you come to this church, I make you a promise. I'm going to offend you. When I do it, I won't know I did. I will not have meant to do it. I did it by accident. But I'm just an idiot sometimes. 
and I will offend you. And you know, to me, that's just a game changer. So when I saw this, I said, so if that's the key, so we all, we all are a mess, then we come to this conclusion that the only way you're going to learn to walk in love is to learn to love difficult people. And that's why Paul says walking in love is humility, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. That's why, because we're all, all of us are difficult people. And if we're going to walk together like that, it's really going to take one thing. And that is just having the commitment to not run, not get defensive, just stay together and hang together whenever you come into a rough patch in your relationship. I mean, you know, you do this in marriage. Folks, listen to me. With marriage. You know, Don and I recently celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary, and I said, thank you, thank you for that. It has been tough. And I... <laughs> and I... You know, people say, people say, people have asked me and Don, me and Don to say, What's the secret of your marriage 50 years? What's the, and they want to hear this real deep romantic, ooh, I can't wait. What's it going to be good? And you know what I tell them? Here's the secret. Commitment. What? We just decided to stay together. You idiots that are out there getting divorced because of irreconcilable differences, give me a break. Don and I have been married 50 years, and we still have irreconcilable differences. No, seriously, we could have had 50 divorces by now. There's still stuff we don't agree on. But we just made a commitment, baby. We're in this thing together. And you know what? What we don't realize is when you make that commitment, everything changes. The D word is out the window. Let me say it again. The D word is out the window. For your marriage, but also for the church. This is your family. Don't use the D word. It's out the window. But secondly... Let me tell you this, that you, when you make the decision to hang together, something happens to your relationship after you go through a rough patch together. and Just people don't realize it. That there's nothing like a relationship after you've gone through a bunch of stuff together and you work it out and you come out on the other side. Sometimes you even fight the thing through and come out on the other side. And when you do, you're closer than ever before, whether it's a marriage or a friendship, your brothers and sisters in Christ in church, some of the most beautiful friends you'll ever have are those that you have had disagreement with, but you fought it through. Can somebody say amen? amen. All right, now listen to this. I want to end this message. And when I say end, it's going to be about 10 minutes, all right? So I want you to understand that. So don't get there and think, all right, we've got two minutes to go. Listen. But this is important. This is really important. I want to end this message 
by reading you a moving passage of Scripture. And it's interesting because I guarantee you many of you read it many times and you don't, you just pass right over it and neglect it. But here's what it is. It's in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was written by Paul at the end of his life to Timothy, his dear son in the Lord. And here's what was happening. Watch this. Years ago, I was in Rome, the city of Rome, coming back from Israel. And I had the privilege to go visit the Mamertine prison. The Mamertine prison is where Paul was imprisoned at the very end of his life, awaiting execution under Nero. And I walked down the stairs to this underground dirt room that used to be a cistern. It held water. And now it's this dirt room, 15 by 10, dark, dank, cold. He's there shackled, hands and feet, waiting to die. And he writes this. He ends his letter this way. Watch this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. So Paul is given his valedictory speech. This is the end. I'm ready for heaven. Watch this. And then his thoughts turn to what? His thoughts turn to the people that he's had in his life. And watch this. It is powerful. He says, Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly. So right there, he said, Timothy, I'm coming to the end. Man, I am really hurting. I need you, Timothy. Come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. So I need Timothy, but Demas has forsaken me. Who was Demas? Demas was no casual acquaintance of Paul's. This guy knew Paul intimately. Demas, in fact, went with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. So he knew this guy, and yet he forsook him. And you understand, it didn't just say he left. He forsook him. To forsake means to renounce. It means to renounce and completely turn away from. So Demas, who loved, who knew Paul intimately, he ended up turning away from him and he X'd him out of his life, renounced him. Incredible, isn't it? And then he says this, watch this. He's thinking of all these people. He, then he says, Cretans for De De Galatia. That means he departed for Galatia. Cretans left for Galatia. Titus for Dalmatia. Now watch this. These weren't forsakers, they were leavers. Watch this. So they didn't renounce Paul but they just left. It doesn't say why they left, but they weren't there when Paul needed them. And then it says this. Look at this. Are y'all still with me? Ooh, this is good. I love these next five words. Only Luke is with me. 
I love that. I've always loved Luke. Luke was known as the dearly beloved physician. And I thought about this. Think of this. So you got two guys, Demas and Luke. Luke went with Paul in his missionary journeys also. In fact, he was there on one of the same missionary journeys that Demas was. So the two guys, both of them, saw the same Paul. They saw the same victories of Paul, his successes, but they saw his flaws. They saw the same weaknesses. They both saw when Paul got ticked off, when he lost his temper, which he surely did. But yet one forsook him and one stayed loyal to the end. If both of them would have forsaken me, he would have told me there maybe is a problem with Paul. But when one forsook him and one stayed, it told me the problem was not with Paul, the problem was with Demas. You see, Demas didn't become a forsaker the moment he got ticked at Paul. He was a forsaker in his heart long before he had the opportunity to do it. It was a posture that he had set in his heart that I'm going to love people. If they tick me off enough, I'm out of here, baby. And Luke was the opposite. When he got ticked off at Paul, he wasn't sitting, Luke wasn't sitting there saying, shall I leave, shall I stay, shall I leave, shall I stay? Luke had decided that long before he knew Paul. Oh, y'all get this. I don't know about you, but I love this stuff. Because it changes me the way I think about relationships. You know what it means? You know, Vicki, when, when you really act up and tick me off. Y'all can't imagine that, can you? I can't either. It's like I've already made the decision. More likely it would go the other way. I am. You made the decision. Luke made that decision. So anyway, watch this. And then he says, I love this. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for ministry. And I want to say, what? Mark? Do you know who this dude is? I mean, that Mark went with Paul on his first missionary journey and then Paul got ticked off at Mark and fired him. Wouldn't let him go with him on the next journey. He fired him, but somewhere down the line, they reconciled their relationship. They worked through the mess and came back together so much so that somehow this guy that they, he had gone, who he had butted heads with, now at the end of Paul's life, said, he's one of the guys I need here with me. Folks, listen, which tells me all relationships go through rough patches. The ones you're going to want there at the end are the ones that you've been through hell with, that you got mad at and they got mad at you, but you stayed together and saw that each other was faithful, and now they mean more to you than other people do because you fought through this thing. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? So anyway... And then he says this, Antichicus. Now look, I'd like to talk to Antichicus's mama. <laughs> she must have had a bad day. Antichicus, I have sent to Ephesus. So I won't say a lot about this except to say, look, Antichicus is gone too, but he didn't leave. Paul 
so loved Tychicus and trusted him, trusted the relationship that he was able to send Tychicus to represent him. And then he says this. He said, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. There's emotion in all these things. It was cold and dank, dark. And he just said, bring me my coat. I'm cold. And the books, especially the parchments. And then he said, talks about one more person. He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. He did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Now watch this. Here's where I'm ending. Alexander is a whole other kind of person. He is the only one in this group that Paul says, you need to mark him publicly. I'm calling him out publicly and telling you watch that guy. He didn't even do that with Demas. Why did he do that with Alexander? Because Alexander was not just a forsaker, he was a betrayer. The Lord gave me this little thing out of this passage. He said, you see here what you see? There are leavers, there are forsakers, and there are betrayers. Forsakers are those that leave, X you out of the relationship, they renounce you, want to have nothing to do with you. But, but betrayers go a step farther. It's not enough for them to just to leave the relationship. They want to cause you harm on the way out. Now, folks, I will never, ever in my lifetime understand how in the world people can do that. It just doesn't compute with me how you could be in a relationship and then you come out of that relationship and something tells you you're going to devote yourself to destroy that person. And I, frankly, I've seen people do that with churches like ours. They leave and it's not enough to leave. They want to destroy things on the way out. I think, dude, what are you smoking? I mean, give me a break. You're speaking against the bride of Christ. And I'll say this, folks. You know, God's got a great mission for us in the days ahead. He really does. God, I know, I'm confident God has really powerful vision for this house. God's speaking to Pastor Josh and Tori so much in these days. And but I'll tell you this. What we have to do is we when we come to church, we have to have the mindset, I'm not just coming here to worship and hear the word. I'm coming here because I get to connect with the family of God. And we have to have this mindset, that's why I join life groups. Because at life groups, we come to people's homes and we connect. Yeah, we're studying the Bible and we're praying and all that. But even, frankly, maybe even more than that, we're connecting with our brothers and sisters. We're becoming family and loving each other. And I'll just say this, folks. Listen to me. I want, I want to say, basically, I'll talk on two planes here. Number one, concerning the church. You know, look around this room. And I want you, I want to ask you, who do you value in this room? Go tell them. Make sure they know it. 
and treat them properly. Give them space and grace for their flaws and their weaknesses. And who is there around this room that you don't know very well or don't know at all? Look, I believe that I believe it's part of your responsibility as a family member to try to get to know as many people here as possible. It is totally antithetical to the idea of church and family to come to a church, walk in at church time, just to worship, hear the word, and slip right out, never connecting with the people. That's not what the church is about at all. It's about family. Get to know the people here around you. Then I want to say something on another plane concerning your marriage. First of all, whatever you're going through in your marriage, the two of you need together, you need to grow up, become spiritual adults, and say, we're committed to this relationship regardless of what it takes. We may have differences of opinion. We may have offended each other. Let's work through it. How? By humbling ourselves, being gentle, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Are you all with me today? Are you happy to be part of the family of God? Come on, give the Lord a big praise in this place. Everybody stand to your feet with me. Stand to your feet with me. Thanks for listening today. We pray this message encourages you. If you have any questions or you'd like to learn more about us as a church, you can always visit us online by going to lifechurchstl.com.